Stories connect us as humans. A well-told story can motivate and inspire us. Storytelling is the ultimate superpower. Be The Drop is a weekly podcast that investigates how to tell stories that engage. Join me, Amelia Veal, on our shared journey to become better storytellers. In episode 238, co-founder of iDiscover, Esther Van Stekellenberg explains why it's important to keep cultural heritage alive for a more vibrant and viable urban future. She explains the value of unlocking community stories to connect people and places to help us celebrate the spirit of place. This is Esther's version of Be The Drop. Are you starting a podcast? Narrative Marketing delivers a full range of podcast production and training options. Visit narrativemarketing.com.au or hit the link in the show notes for more details. This episode was recorded in conjunction with PauseFest 2021, Australia's leading digital startup and innovation conference. Head to pausefest.com.au for more info. Esther, thank you so much for joining us for our next episode of Be The Drop. Thank you. You're talking at PauseFest and I want to get a little bit of understanding around exactly what it is that you're doing because it includes things like bottom-up mapping, which I'm not 100% sure exactly what that means. But also you're talking about storytelling as a tool for inclusive placemaking, which is something I really like. But your background is in urban planning. So perhaps if you could start by just introducing us to what it was first about urban planning that you know you're passionate about and interested in. I think, you know, way back when you're a child and you kind of just start playing around with things, I was always interested more in Lego bricks than I was in playing with dolls. And I think that's that's where it all kind of started. To be very honest, when I had to choose a profession, it, it was more kind of an intuitive choice. Urban planning was offered as a studies in the city of Amsterdam, which I thought was just a really cool place to go. It's all about creating and making places that that people love. And as I then kind of grew into the profession and worked as an urban planner, mainly throughout Asia, I also ended up kind of really realizing the value of good urban planning. And as I was working uh, on projects throughout Asia, while we were producing all these reports, what made the cities particularly in Asia, so kind of lovable and fun to be in, was kind of disappearing before our eyes. And that is what triggered us to kind of start this project. And so the project is is I Discover. And I like this idea that you're looking to unlock community intelligence and connect people with place and how we use those spaces and how they should seamlessly integrate. Now, you talked about something called bottom-up mapping, and I think it's a terminology that I'm not 100% familiar with. So perhaps if you could explain the terminology and then tell us how it helps unlock that interconnectedness. Yeah, so so often when you when you think top down, so when you're a, a planner or a city maker or a mayor of a place, and you know what you really want to kind of capture is is the heart and the soul of a place. But when then the power is given to to the developers to just kind of go and run with places, as it is the case in in a lot of places in Asia, then you you sometimes lose lose control of that. So we kind of try to turn the the process upside down. 
the community is often perceived as a consumer, not really as a kind of a decision maker in any shape or form. So what we basically do is when we go to a neighborhood, we team up with a local group and it could be a school, could be a university, could be a street association, an NGO and through a variety of, of games and exercises, uh, we work to digest what makes their neighborhood so unique. You know, what is it that makes the place tick? And we put that on a map and in an app so that in that way we kind of amplify their voices and then through that, when that mayor or that policymaker that I first spoke about, when they see something on a map, suddenly something magical happens and it suddenly is a point that can no longer so easily be removed. And what I like about this concept is the humanising of place. As you say, it's the heart and the soul of the community because it's generally we might think of a building as a building, whereas you're looking at this as as a space, as the heart and soul. Yeah, and especially here in Asia, when people talk about heritage, for example, they think of buildings. When we talk about heritage, we think about also the intangible, yeah? So the things that you cannot see. I mean, one example is, is we mapped a neighborhood in, in Hong Kong in Causeway Bay that's already gone through five phases of reincarnation, of buildings being there, being demolished, new building demolished again. And still there are people that have memories or stories from a building that was there, for example, two generations ago. So we made a memory map of that particular neighborhood. And so, and what does that, what is that a memory map? Like that's a fabulous concept. So, and this is the physical map of people's stories connected with place. Yeah. So it could be many things. It could be a, a person who lived there. It could be a, a special kind of part of the architecture. It could be a recipe. It could, you know, it's, it could be many things. And if, if you move away a little bit from the kind of the technocratic attitude to, to mapping and you embrace a bit more kind of the creative, the storytelling side of mapping, that's when you, when you access these type of stories and feelings. It's not just one person's memory, especially this older generation here in Asia. They sometimes feel that what they own or what they do doesn't really matter anymore. When you put them together in a room and they start sharing these stories, they suddenly start to feel kind of a, a sense of pride, a sense of ownership that what, what, what they do and what they care about and what they remember, that there's value in that. And then if you perhaps connect it with a younger generation, their angle is often looking for some kind of identity that they can't find in the kind of the modern urban jungle, uh, where it's just skyscrapers and shopping malls then it becomes a search for a collective identity. And, and I think that is something that is very powerful and that is also very much needed in today's discussion. So you've got these stories and they're mapped. What's the next step as a part of inclusive placemaking? How does that get used? It differs upon the, the client. It differs upon the budget that we, we have available. Perhaps two, two examples to, to illustrate. We're currently in Hong Kong working on a project whereby we're trying to imagine the future of an old heritage building whereby the client is the local government and they would like to use that building for the community, but they don't really know how. So then we use this mapping process to first kind of build a, a base of trust with that local community. Then when it becomes a map 
that becomes then an entry point to bring the discussion from kind of the neighborhoods to, to the building level, to basically a design uh, process for a new purpose for an old building. So that's, that's one way to use it. And another, I think, what was a very powerful project is one that we did in Yangon, whereby the question came from a completely different angle. It had to do with there being a lot of, kind of distrust in society among different cultural groups, and especially among the older generation in the city of Yangon. So we basically build an hypothesis that perhaps this was not necessarily the case among a younger generation. So we put a, a group from different cultural backgrounds through a mapping storytelling exercise in a particular neighborhood. You know, what are the places that are special to you and why? And again, a very variety of exercises. So they came back to discuss... And we were basically all the time observing whether there was any difference between, for example, the people with a Muslim background or a Christian background or a Buddhist background, whether they had different perceptions. And funnily enough, it wasn't the case. They were all actually pretty adamant that the cultural diversity in that neighborhood is what made it so special. And for example, the Muslim background youngsters were as enthusiastic about a golden pagoda as the ones with a, a different kind of cultural background. And I think this was a very powerful exercise in almost kind of reducing the risk for social conflict. I mean, if you, if you have a young generation from very, very different backgrounds all living in the city, and especially in these days when there's all that unrest uh, brewing in various cities across Asia. And you allow an exercise like this to find some common ground and then empower these locals to become so confident that in front of an audience or perhaps even in front of their parents or their bosses or their peers, they can confidently make positive statements about issues like cultural identity or diversity. Yeah, again, it, it was a real eye-opener for us. And it, it was definitely an exercise that we would like to kind of repeat in other places. Mm. And so the, these sort of broad community challenges that you're addressing, you know, you're looking at things that can be quite complex and, and many governments across the world are, are trying to answer and look at those. And one of the key things you're saying is most powerful is giving people a voice, allowing their stories to be told and heard. So that's really giving a lot of power back to the people. Is that what's really important in this process? Yeah, it's. I would say that we're amplifying voices. We're not going the quantitative way. It's about the qualitative data. But definitely providing an additional layer to influence decision-making and, and to kind of, yeah, amplify local voices and make them visible in a way that they, they can be used as an, as an asset in, in discussions and they can be as, used as an asset in place branding and they can be something that a city mayor can take under his arm with the click of a button, be impressed and think, ah, you know, these people in this community, they obviously care about something. Now I have a, a channel of communication. Mm. And so then in this process and your experience, have you found that including these voices, amplifying these voices and then making the changes to the building or place, has there been positive impacts of how that community engages with the building? 
Yeah, let me give you an example of, of, of another project uh, we did here in Hong Kong. It took an, a number of years and, and, and it was centered around the upgrading of a back alley. So it wasn't a building, it, it, it was a, a public space. And it was in one of these older neighborhoods that was very quickly gentrifying. Now, I think that's something that we can all kind of imagine what's, what that would look like. The community worker that was in charge of that project was faced with numerous challenges every day. And at a certain point also didn't really know how to kind of approach this anymore. When, when we started working with that team, slowly kind of the, the confidence grew, the trust grew. And in the end, the interventions that were made in, in that alley, in a really quite complicated environment with building owners, with old shopkeepers, with commuters, with you know a lot of people using that space with very conflicting interests. The interventions that were made, I think uh, he felt a lot more confident about them. And also the user feedback of people has been really good. So his statement, I'll never forget, afterwards when we asked him, you know, so what really was the added value of, of this process? He says, well, if you want to work with people, you first need to recognize their roots. And I thought that was a really kind of a, a powerful statement. So if, if you want to convince people that that particular change that you want to bring upon a building, a neighborhood, a place is, is a good one, you need, you need them to trust you that, you know, you're acting in their best interest and recognizing their roots for him was one of the ways of doing that. And, and he said that with hindsight, it was also an, an eye-opening experience for him from that perspective. I like the concept of moving forward by bringing your history elements with you, like bringing the roots too. I think that's a lovely concept. Well, especially here in Asia where things are changing at such kind of uh, rapid speed. Yeah. So then moving forward, if you're looking into the future, where do you see this, the I Discover project will evolve? What are the, the things that you're looking to address next? Uh, I think what we're most excited about is that this flat platform can really be used as a connector for a younger generation. We've run a couple of school projects and university projects, and we realize that today's younger generation often has no idea of the environment they live in. They very rarely communicate with people in their neighborhood. And the, the couple of projects that we have run were just amazing in terms of feedback, both from the kids that we worked with, from their teachers, from their parents, from the people they interviewed on the street. So I think that that is really a direction we would like to, to work more in and not just in Asia. I mean, I think you could run an exercise like that anywhere in the world, you know, put a bunch of kids together, have them map what's important in their neighborhood and then go out, explore and talk to people and, and basically find out what their neighborhood is all about because they've got no idea. Mm. And, and yeah, so that's what we would really love to do more of. And then I think we'd like to do more with the data that we've been able to collect over those five years. Because as I said, we've, we've not really focused very much on the quantitative side of things, but we realize that by now we're sitting on, on quite a wealth of data in, in, in the form of, of perceptions of these older districts. That could actually be quite valuable. Mm. Esther, thank you so much for sharing this incredible project. In conclusion, I'd love to get your perspective on the power of storytelling. Like what is it about storytelling that you think is so powerful? 
I think it's the personal element. When we ask our designers to create that neighborhood map, and these designers are always local designers that are from the city or from the neighborhood, we feed them with the stories that we got from the people in that community. And based on that, they make kind of their own artistic interpretation of a neighborhood. And that's artistic work fueled by anecdotes related to a place. There's something, sometimes some magic uh, that happens. And also these designers often tell us that these are kind of the most rewarding projects that they work on. Because it is not just about putting a building on a map. It is putting you know, someone's personal memory on there. And, you know, once you've put it there, you know, no one can take that away from you. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Be The Drop. Don't forget to subscribe in order to ensure you never miss out on one of our weekly episodes. Be The Drop is produced by Narrative Marketing, where we believe that stories connect individuals and that powerful storytelling can positively impact the world. To unleash your storytelling superpower, visit narrativemarketing.com.au or check out our social links in the show notes. To contact me directly with any specific comments you have, you can email me via amelia at narrativemarketing.com.au. And don't forget that whilst a task or challenge may seem overwhelming, a waterfall begins with one drop and look what comes from that. This is a Narrative Network podcast.